0: Father, what a beautiful reminder of the great hope that we have in a glorious Savior. We thank you, Lord, that we can come and be reminded of your plan to redeem us, to make us your own. We thank you, Father, that we have been given so much in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you that our sins have been forgiven. We thank you that our standing with you has been made right. We thank you that regardless of what we may face in this world, that we have a great anchor for our soul and a hope and an assurance that will never fade. Father, as we open your Word now, would you give us understanding of it, and would you help us to be changed by your Spirit as we hear from you this morning? God, would you teach us, and would you change us, we pray, in Christ's name, amen. Our passage this morning is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 18. John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. We read, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's right hand. He has made him known. You know, in the first week of our Advent series, we considered what it meant for Jesus to be the fully divine Son of God. We saw that in verses 1 and 2. The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with, was with God, and the Word was God. In the last two weeks, we've considered how Jesus is not only the divine Son, but He is the true light, the light of the world, the one who compels us to trust in Him, the, the one by which all will be judged, those will, the, the, the world will be divided into those who receive him and those who continue in their rejection of him. And then this morning we come to John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, and we see here how Jesus is deity who takes on humanity. He is the God, He's God in the flesh. Indeed, it was. F.F. Bruce that said, If there is among the distinctive articles of the Christian faith one which is basic to all others, it is this, that our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became man for our salvation. You know, we get to this great text of John chapter 1, and really we could say this is what the entire Old Testament prepared for. This is the promise kept, very promise that God made us. He kept and He demonstrated in the sending of His own Son into the world that we might have hope. As we think about Christmas and all the blessings that we enjoy, there is no greater blessing than to know that God Himself became one of us so we could be rescued and know him forever. As we think about John 1, verses 14 through 18, we have a very clear description of what we call the incarnation. God becoming a man, God coming to this world to bring salvation. And so we need to ask ourselves, well, what did did the incarnation do? Why is it so important that we consider God becoming flesh, what did the Incarnation do? I want us to see four realities about this amazing, glorious doctrine. I think C.S. Lewis said it was the greatest of all mysteries. Four important truths about the Incarnation. Let's consider these this morning. The first thing that we see about the Incarnation is that it revealed the purpose of God. God becoming a man it revealed the, the purpose of God. John, we know, gives us a theologically rich look into Christmas. Not that the others do not. Not that the other gospel writers don't. We, we know that the, the, the four gospels, when considered all together, give us a, a great and glorious picture of the life and ministry of Jesus. But it, it's John that gives us, early on here, a theologically heavy look into Christmas. And he emphasizes the purpose for which Christ came right out of the box. But here in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us is probably one of the most concise and stunning statements in the entire New Testament. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That statement alone is so filled with depths that we will never fathom. Two important things that we see here about the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. First of all, we see the humanity of Christ. We've talked earlier, and we'll see it again in this text as well, we talked earlier in our series about the divinity of Christ. In Jesus, in one person, you have two distinct natures, a fully divine and a fully human nature. The Word became flesh. Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. But we need to realize, as we said earlier in this series, something very important about this birth. Listen, God the Son did not come into existence at this point. But He became a human being in addition to a divine being. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says there, in him, speaking of Christ, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So when the Son entered this world as a man, he did not cease being God. He added humanity. Again, to be clear, the, the Son did not change into a man where he ceased being God, and so What we have here is the fact that God is now in human flesh. The Son of God enters into our space and into our realm, our experience, and He lives life as a man. We see this word flesh. John could not have used a more human word than that word. He could have used several different words to describe the humanity of Jesus, but he goes for the, uh, really, for a word. That that gets to the heart of it all, flesh. We know in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, we read there For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was a human, he was in the flesh without sin. Even though John places a lot of attention, not just in this first chapter, but throughout the rest of the gospel, he focuses a lot of attention on the divinity of Christ. Listen, he doesn't want us to lose sight that he was also fully man. Why is that such a big deal? I mean, why, why, why were there councils convened in 325 AD and, for, you know, all these early church councils and all of these, these wonderful creeds that were established throughout church history. Why is this such a big deal? Well, there are many reasons we could go and we could spend the rest of the day talking about it, but I just want to help you understand why it's such a big deal that Jesus became, that G- G- the Son of God became a man, and we, we have that in the person of Jesus Christ. Several things. First of all, obviously, is the truth that he can relate to us. It's in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows our sorrows. He knows our temptations. He knows the weariness that we have. He knows what it means to be hungry, what it means to be full. He knows what it means to be disappointed and the pain that, that humanity often experiences. The fact that God became a man means that He relates to you. No matter your struggle, you know. You know sometimes people are tempted to think, "No one knows what I'm going through." Jesus does. God chose to live life as a man. Listen, his temptations were real temptations. I think sometimes we we get this wrong notion that, that, well, the reason Jesus was able to endure sin was because he was God, and so, of course. No, he lived life as a man. He had real emotion. His temptations were true temptations. He cried real tears. He had true struggles. He can relate to you. Think about that. Even as vile and weak as our body may seem at times, the fact that God became flesh gives us dignity, doesn't it? And worth, since God was not ashamed to take on human form. Not only does he relate to us, he he lived for us. Jeremy prayed this earlier in his prayer, but we read from Romans 5. Romans is a great book. We should go through it sometime. (laughs) Romans 5, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus comes and he lives the life, as Jeremy said, the life we all should have lived and we didn't. He lived in perfect obedience to his Father's will. He never yielded one moment to sin. He kept the law. He obeyed the Father's will. He obeyed. He lived for us. But we know that also he died for us. He died for us. He died in our place. The book of Hebrews again says in verse 14 of chapter 2, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So all of these are reasons as to why it was so important that we recognize that God becomes a man in the person of Jesus Christ. He relates and he obeys for us and he dies in our place. Only as a man could God suffer death for us. You know, from Paul's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, we read, Therefore there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. J.B. Phillips, he's known for a modern paraphrase of the New Testament, once said this of Jesus' humanity. He said, if this was indeed God focused in a human being, we can see for ourselves that here is no play acting. There are no supernatural advantages for this man. No celestial rescue party delivered him from the power of evil men. And his agony was not mitigated by any superhuman anesthetic. He lived life as a man, he faced temptation as a man, he struggled human weaknesses as a man, he wept, he was hungry, and he died for your sin and mine. We know that that that's not the end of the story, he was raised from the dead, he's at the father's right hand today and he's coming again. Friend, as you think about that, as you just think about the little glimpse that we've had this morning of the humanity of Christ, what does this say? That God Himself would enter into our world and become one of us. What does that say? It's a truly glorious reality. Not only do you have the humanity of Christ, but you also have the humility of Christ. He became flesh and dwelt among us, literally, to pitch his tent among us or to tabernacle among us. That's what the Jewish ear would have heard. The incarnation was not just a quick visit from God as if there was this divine drone that flew over and landed salvation for us. God himself clothes himself in human flesh and takes up residence in the world he created, a world, by the way, that had rejected him. The holy God came to live among the unholy. The fact that he made his tent among us expands this idea that God has come to take up residence among his people, and we know that this terminology and this language stretches even back into the Old Old Testament imagery of the tabernacle. Literally, he tabernacled among us. We know from the Exodus, as the people made their way through the wilderness, they were given the tabernacle as a tent was pretty much a temporary or a mobile tent made of canvas structure. And they would set this up, and there would be, in the midst of the camp of Israel, this this tent of worship where the presence and glory of God would dwell in their midst. It was made of three areas, an outer court, an outer room, and then an inner room where the glory of God would be. It's as if John is using, picking up on that very language now and he brings it into this New Testament and this fulfillment of the coming of Christ and he essentially is teaching that now Jesus is the true tabernacle. He pitched his tent among us. But we also see the importance of him being the tabernacle in several different ways. We know through his life and ministry, his body became the curtain ripped in two for us, Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 20. He is the great high priest over the house of God, Hebrews 10, verse 21 and 22. And he is the Lamb of God that takes away our sin, John 1, 29. He he fulfills it all. In that Old Testament structure where you had this this, this tent of worship where the glory of God was, and you had the sacrifices, you had the priest, Jesus is it all. He is the ripped curtain. He is the high priest. He is the Lamb of God that takes away our sin. And so you see very clearly the humility of God to become a man, to become one of us, to humble himself, to dwell here for our sake. reveals the purpose of God, the incarnation. But number two, it displays the glory of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John speaks of those who lived in Jesus' day. We have seen His glory. They saw the glory of God. Now, glory was associated with the tabernacle as well. We know that in that inner room, the glory of God, and then later the temple, so forth. And even in Ezekiel chapter 10, because of Israel's own idolatry and rejection, we have that, that vision in Ezekiel 10 where the glory of God departs the temple, leaves the temple. But now in Jesus, the new and better temple, the new and better tabernacle has come, and the glory has returned not to a building, but in a person. In the Old Testament, the people would have gone to the tabernacle and temple to meet God, but now it's in Jesus that we meet him. We know that there were many eyewitnesses to the glory of Christ. So here we're back to the divine nature that Jesus had. Again, we need to keep in mind that God did not merely become a man as if he morphed into from being a divine being, now he's human. He was the God-man. Jesus did not lay aside all of his attributes, but he did, although he chose not to access them all, it's not as if he ceased being God to become a man. He was God in the flesh. And when people encountered him, lives were changed. Thomas, doubting Thomas, He said he wouldn't believe it until he was able to put his own hands in his wounds. When he put his hands in Jesus' side, you remember what he said? My Lord and my God. The centurion at the crucifixion, as he watched Jesus' death unfold, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. It's not merely a man. There's something greater than that. There's many miracles we see that the, the, the glory of God was on display, whether He was healing someone or raising people from the dead or calming a sea or walking on water. His glory was on display for people to see. Most of all, his glory was on display as he hung on the cross for our sin. Jesus said in John 12, verse 23, he said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. he would die in our place, be raised in glory. Now, not everyone saw this glory, did they? But those who had eyes to see it, were able to behold the glory of Christ. Those who were healed, those who were raised, those who watched him do these many miracles, all of this was on display. Even John the Baptist. John the Baptist, right here in our text, verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. Because he was before me. Now John was born first. Six months before Jesus was born, and so in that order of things, John would have kind of held some preeminence over him in rank, but he says, no, not the case. Even though he comes after me, he ranks before me, because he was before me. He's pointing to the greatness and the glory of Christ. We know that lives were transformed when people would behold this glory. And so the the incarnation, this is what it does, It it displays the glory of God. But a third point is it extends the grace of God. You see that in verses 16 and 17. We've already seen it in verse 14. We've seen His glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, and from his fullness we have received grace upon grace, or literally grace instead of grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. When Christ came, not only did he display the glory of God in these different ways, he came to bring the blessings of God for the good of the world He came to bring, bring grace. He goes on to say in verse 16 that it's grace upon grace, or grace instead of grace. Even in the old covenant, there is an element of truth that, that, that there's an element of grace there because it's a, it's a, a preparation for what would come. Let's say a schoolmaster would show us our sin and drive us to the point of seeing our need for Christ. And there's grace even in that. And when Christ came, there was even more grace. I think verse 17 gets at that a little bit as he elaborates further. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was gracious in that it prepared us. But now it's been replaced by further grace in the coming of Christ. So in Christ we have all that, we will never, all that we will ever need. I love how Paul puts it to Titus in Titus chapter 2, where he says, verse 11 For the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God has appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I know that we live in a world filled with people still looking for something, He has come. People live in the world still looking for some gift from God and some some grace maybe from God that they they need or some, some blessing from God. Listen, you have everything you need in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Everything. This grace is the source of all our hope. Salvation is a work of God's grace whereby He gives us the very thing we don't deserve. Full pardon of our sin. Who deserves that? None of us. But because the grace of God has appeared, we have it fully in Christ. We have grace given to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is the salvation that we also desperately needed. We know that we were all sinners. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. By nature, we were children of wrath. We deserve the, the righteous condemnation of a holy God because of our rebellion against our Creator. And yet, in His mercy, in His kindness, in His grace, because of the love with which he had for us, he sends his son into the world. God becomes a man, and ultimately he's crucified so that we can be forgiven, so that we can know what it means to have hope. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is, this is not very eloquently delivered, but this is the best news in the world. We can't tell you any greater news than that, that God so loved you that he became a man and he dealt with the crud of this world and ultimately went to a cross and died there to bear the full wrath and punishment for people just like you. If you would look to him and trust in him, turn from your sin and believe in him, you will be forgiven and you will be saved. There's no greater news than that, friends. This is the hope that we have. This is why we celebrate Christmas. This is why He came. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Grace and truth. Not only did Christ come and deliver full grace, He came to give us truth. He is the embodiment of truth. He Himself declared that He is the way, the truth, and the life. People are in search of truth today. Look no further than the person of Jesus Christ. Not only do we have grace and truth, he says that we have grace upon grace. Grace instead of grace. There's this never-ending flow of grace. And that is good news. Not only did it extend the grace of God, the incarnation, number four, it, it communicated the presence of God. Verse 18 reminds us of something we learn in the Old Testament. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's right hand. He has made him known. Listen, something we learn from the Bible is that no one can see God fully and live to tell about it. Even Moses wanted to see the glory of God, but he wasn't allowed to see it fully. We see that in Exodus 33-34. through But now in Christ, people could see God. John says it here. He, Jesus, has made him known. Jesus said in John 6, 46, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Paul in Colossians 1 said that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. So if you want to see and know God, then you must look to Jesus. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He's the one that makes God known. So we see that this is what the incarnation does. It reveals the purpose of God to come into the world to save sinners. He became a man to do that. He had to do that because of the way in which salvation would be brought. It displayed the glory of God. It, it put on display before those eyewitnesses. They saw the glory of God and through the works of Christ. It, we know that it extended the grace of God. This is how salvation comes and it communicated the presence of God. So what does all this mean for us? Maybe those are helpful things to know, and those are good truths to. Well, how does that change us today? What does all this mean? I want to give you four implications. First of all, it has everything to do with salvation. The incarnation is a real life rescue mission where God himself descends into the world to save you. He doesn't send angels to do it. He doesn't send yet another prophet to do it. He comes himself and accomplishes it. As the world is in such shape and brokenness that we could never save ourselves, People try every day. They're trying to work their way. They're trying to earn their way. They're trying to prove their way. They're trying to demonstrate to others and maybe even God that they are not as bad as people think. The truth of the matter is, is that no one can save themselves. We need a Savior. We need someone outside of us to come and save us. And God did just that. Jesus is your hope. He is the only mediator between God and man. And if you are to find hope, if you are to find salvation, you must put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ and no other. Second implication we have is identification. Sometimes we're tempted to think, as I said earlier, that God is far removed from our experiences. But the incarnation reminds us that God is able to sympathize with us. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses, with our pains, with our sorrows. Friends, just ask you, when life gets hard, where do you turn? According to the Bible, we should turn to the man of sorrows, the one who was acquainted with grief. He knows the sufferings of this world. And friend, you can find sufficient refuge in him. In fact, I would say you'll find no greater refuge. No greater refuge will you find than that in Christ. Third implication we could say is imitation. Listen, there's not going to be another Jesus. He's it. But something we find in him through his example, is one that we ought to take note of. We, We know that he came to do a lot more than merely be an example or a model for us. He came to actually accomplish our redemption. He came to make us right with a holy God. He came to give us life, abundant life now, and eternal life. He came to do all of that, and he accomplished that. But he also serves as a great example for us to follow, doesn't he? You think about his godliness. He lived as a man, and he stood against temptation, Think about the love that he had. John says in chapter 13, verse 35, that we're to love one another as Christ loved you. Think about his mission. We ought to consider those around us. Jesus wasn't afraid to be around tax collectors and sinners. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And he loved them. You think about just all that Jesus did in, in, this, in, this, in his earthly life and ministry. you think about all that he did. I mean there are many great things there that he did that, that accomplished not only our salvation, but it serves as a great model and example. Paul, Paul said that he, he calls one of the particular churches to imitate him because he imitates Christ. So not only do we have salvation, not only do we identify with Christ, not only is there an example for us to imitate, but there is adoration. The incarnation is a worship-producing doctrine. Friends, if you come to understand the incarnation and you aren't led to exalt the Lord, I'm not really sure you understood it. If you can think about the fact that God became a man to save you and you're not moved by that, I'm not sure you're movable. There's an old hymn called, Who is He in Yonder Stall? First verse says, Who is He in Yonder Stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? And it goes on and then the chorus picks up, "'Tis the Lord, O wondrous story, "'Tis the Lord, the King of glory, "'at His feet we humbly fall, "'crown Him, crown Him Lord of all.'" Friends, that is the response to the incarnation. Adoration, worship, amazement, glory and rejoicing and praise given to God because of who He is and what He's done Friend, is this your response to the Word become flesh? Paul wrote a hymn. It's found in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. And this is a song that was likely used in the early church. Paul wrote there in Philippians chapter 2, I think it's a great summary. It's a great summary of response to what we see even here in this text this morning. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what God has done. The glory of Christmas is seen in the incarnation. Listen, when we were at our very worst, God sent his very best. He came himself so that you and I, so that we could have full pardon, so that we could have a great hope. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And because of that, there's every reason to celebrate and every reason to rejoice, and there is no greater news in the world. And I hope and pray that you know this Savior, and if you don't, What's keeping you? What's keeping you back from trusting in him? Is it your pride? Is it your sin? And this is the hope of the world. Look to him and be saved. And those of you who are, continue to rejoice that you've been given a great hope that will never fade and that will never be taken away. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this reminder and this truth. That through the incarnation, the fact that you would so love this world that you would become one of us, to take upon yourselves firsthand the burden and the weight of our guilt and our punishment. The the fact that we are lived in a dark and lost and dying world, a broken world, Lord, and yet you were willing to enter it. You were willing to come and take up residence in this world filled with brokenness, filled with such rebellion against its creator in order to bring about the greatest mission and the greatest purpose that we've ever known, that the nations of this world could be redeemed and that we could have hope and that we could have life. Father, we thank you that it's through Jesus Christ that we have this, and we thank you, Lord, that we can be reminded of it today. My prayer, my prayer, Lord, is that you would move in the hearts of these gathered here today, that you would encourage the believers, remind us of what we've been given. Father, that it would be a source of strength and joy and encouragement to our souls this very day, even as we leave here and go into this world and this day. Lord, a world that's often so marked by grief and sorrow and difficulty and pain and disappointment and sadness, Lord, that this great news, this good news of great joy would be the very source of our strength and hope and life today, that we would cling to Christ, and that we would know, that we would know this great hope. Father, if there are those that are here that don't know you, and Father, they're searching and they're seeking and they're looking for something that they've not yet found, Lord, would you show them their need of a Savior today and draw them to yourself and give hope and life to the very ones that would need it this morning. We thank you that we have everything that we need in Christ. We pray this in his name, amen.